So today we come to John chapter 19, 17 through to 30, which is Jesus' crucifixion. And my goal is to see how John is showing us how to make a personal connection with this story that is life-changing. John is leading us through something which is deeply impactful when you see it. Three steps. First is to see that Jesus was calmly in control, the king. Second, the link with Psalm 22, and then ending with new creation. So, a quick recap. John falls into two halves. Books 1 to 12 are called the Book of Signs by many scholars, and it's a good title because there are seven signs Jesus does. It's his public ministry, his public teaching. 13 through 21, where we're now, is the Book of Glory, where Jesus is glorified on the cross. And the Book of Glory, we can see it starts in chapter 13 with a meal with the disciples, and it ends with another meal with the disciples, but this time on the beach. And then in the middle, we have half of it is Jesus' new teaching, amazing teaching with the disciples, culminating in his prayer in John 17. And then we have his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And we've spent two sessions looking at two trials, one the the Jewish leaders, and then last time we looked at the trial before Pilate. Just a recap of that. Uh, we saw that John structures it as w- walking in and out of the Roman palace with Pilate. And he walks in and talks to Jesus. He walks out and talks to the Jews. And we're forced to walk in Pilate's shoes. And we see how Pilate is caught between two forces, two choices. The passage makes us think about the pressures in our own lives when making choices. There's a risk in standing with Jesus, and there's a risk if we don't. And just as Pilate had to weigh these things up, the question is, is Jesus really your king? Is Jesus really your truth? Pilate chose the wrong way. The challenge here is, are you willing to take the risk which Pilate wasn't willing to, of standing with Jesus. So, uh, this time then, we're going to be looking at Jesus' crucifixion. And let's start off by reading the passage together. And I'm just going to bring it up now in John chapter 19. And before we read it, let me just make this slightly larger. Um, there we are. Um, there. Um, before we read it, I want to, um, to to notice a few things about the way John has given us this story. So we have four events that happen while Jesus is on the cross. And each one of them, he's marked out the beginning with the issue and the end with it, almost often the very same words with the, result, res, uh, the um conclusion of the issue being resolved. So we start off for 19. Pilate had a notice written and fastened to the cross. And then it ends 22. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then we have an incident. Now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus and 
But yes, things happen and it ends. So the soldiers did these things. And it's interesting, the only purpose he could have had for writing that last line there is to give us this kind of completion that we're looking at to say, okay, we've done that, we're moving on. Um, then we have the next one introduces Jesus' mother, verse 25. And then at the end of verse 26, it says, from that hour, the disciple took her, that Jesus' mother, into his own home. So the, pro- the issue is resolved in verse 26. And then 28 begins, after these, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now accomplished, and it ends by saying, Jesus said, it is accomplished. So that marks that off, which it's so neatly marking off those four stories. Now, the question is that should we stop there or should we go further? Well, this is, the, I'll tell you why I've stopped at verse 30. Because if you look at verse 31, it says, then, because it was the day of preparation, and then right the way down to verse 42, John marks the end of that. So, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. Same phrase, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. Do you see that? Um, and so that, to me, is saying John wants us to take that together. And um, I, I, I would prefer to give space to all of these verses and not try and get too much into one message. So, I want, I've decided to break us at the end of verse 30. But there's another reason for breaking at that point, and that is because it ends with the statement, um, it is finished or it is accomplished. And it's like, it seems to me that that's a real kind of point of, of finality that we should stop and think and consider what's happening. So that's a, just a quick uh, outline of why I have chosen this bit of the story to put into one unit in today's message. And uh, I think it has a coherent story, which we're going to look at. So let's look at it in more detail now, shall we? Um, Verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out carrying his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, called Golgotha in Aramaic. There they crucified him along with two others, one on each side, with Jesus in the middle. Uh, it says carrying his own cross. What actually happened, the way the Romans did it, we know this from history, is that the, the cross piece would be, um, would be what the, the person to be crucified carried. And then the vertical would be permanently there in the ground. And the, the cross piece would be carried and then the, when they got there, the victim would be, would be, uh, lay, laying on that and at, attached to the cross, which would then be lifted up and either put crossways in the way that we often have them or put on top like a T. Jesus could have been either. But, um, the, the, so this is the story here. But one of the questions that comes up immediately is, why not more detail? Like, uh, if you look through, um, Christian history, certain groups have spent a lot of detail uh, agonizing over the, the, the pain Jesus went through and explaining in all kinds of detail, um, uh, describing every agonizing step. And all John says is, they crucified him. That's all he says. He doesn't go into any of the detail here. Why not? I think there's a couple of reasons. Partly, 
everybody would have known exactly what he meant. They wouldn't have needed to have done that. But I think the main thing is it would move us away from what John wants us to receive in this story. And actually that raises another thing. There are so many stories that John leaves out in his description of the crucifixion. Um, Nothing about another man taking over the carrying of the cross because Jesus couldn't carry it all. Nothing about the, the two men, the conversations with the men each side of him or or other conversations and things that Jesus said or the darkness that fell for three hours or the temple veil splitting from top to bottom. Nothing about those things. Why? Why is that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that John was written a long time after the other three Gospels were written. And they were well known. And John could have assumed that we knew the story. He didn't need to tell the story. He wanted to pick out certain elements from the story to make a point. And um, another time, another example in his gospel when he does that is he doesn't tell us about Jesus' birth. Like he misses the whole thing out, jumps straight to John the Baptist. Uh, why does he do that? Well, he's being selective because he has a point to make and he doesn't need to give us a history. Um, so all those other things that he left out are important, but they're not as important as the focus that he wants us to have now. Um, another question is, why isn't he explicit about the atonement, what Jesus was actually doing on our behalf, that he was dying for our sin? And uh, that's a good question. I think part of the answer is that if you understood the Passover, the whole context, this is during the Passover, when a lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the people, to atone for the people. So the context is really, really clear that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and Jesus has called himself the Lamb of God. Um, Also, we're going to see a Psalm 22 connection, which I think is going to be quite important. So that leaves us with the question then, why did John choose these particular four stories as his crucifixion stories? And... I want to focus on that this morning because I think John has a single focus in telling us these stories. So let's look at the first of the stories. The first is Pilate. Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this notice because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the notice was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Well, it might sound like a happy accident that, you know, this, by, because of this argument between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, you know, they hated each other and <clears throat> he was trying to taunt them. And so he put this sign. It might sound like a happy accident. But the key, I believe, to understanding this incident is actually to look at what happened a few years earlier. Let's go back and look at a few years, what happened a few years, a few verses earlier. In verse 10, Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? 
He's talking to Jesus. Don't you know I have the authority to release you and to crucify you? Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. So the reason John includes this statement, I believe, about the title over Jesus' head, um, that to show us that amid the horror, Jesus was calmly in control. Actually, he has authority over Pilate at that stage. You might not see it, but he does. And I, this is a big clue that we're not to read this story like some horrific tragedy but as the victory of the king. And I don't think it's an accident this is the first story, because I think this is the title that John has set over the story, just like Pilate set it over Jesus on the cross. So let's go back then to the passage. And we're going to look now at the next story, which is the soldier's and the clothing. Now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and the tunic remained. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven from top to bottom as a single piece. So, the way that they would dress, the men would dress in those days, they would have a, a single tunic, and then if you were going outside or the weather was, was, was cold, you would have a, a big square of cloth that you'd put on as an outer garment. But the tunic would be the main thing that you were wearing. Sometimes they had sleeves, sometimes not. But this was woven all of one piece, so no seams, which would mean it make it more comfortable, but also more expensive. And so uh, the soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who will get it. This took place to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they threw dice. So, um, by the way, this is very well attested in Roman practice that they would do this. It was, um, it was some, it was what the, the, the soldiers got for doing the crucifixion and it's very well attested. But why include this? Well, I think there are two reasons. One of them is that John wants to explicitly link us with Psalm 22. And I've highlighted this in yellow here. And this is going to be important. This is going to be critical. And the second reason, I'm going to hold back now because I want it to be, I don't want to destroy the surprise. But I think there's another reason as well. But I think the key idea here is, again, it's the Jesus is in control theme because the, the soldiers may think that they're in control, uh, but even hanging on the cross, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy through them. Jesus is in control at this point as he's on the cross. So that takes us to the next story, which is the four women. Now it's interesting. There are four soldiers here and John, uh, the four soldiers are, um, uncaring and they just crucified him and we have that contrasted to the four women who are there who are caring john often does this he'll set one thing up against another so these women are here in complete contrast to the soldiers 
Now, standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples, the disciple whom he loved, which would be John, standing there, he said to his mother, Dear woman, look, your son. And then he said to this disciple, look, your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So what is going on here? I don't know if you've ever been on a trip and uh, you're maybe a bit late and you're packing and you've not left enough time and you're hurriedly getting things into the case and maybe you forget something at the last minute. This is the opposite. This is a Jesus who is, everything is paced, everything is done. And the very last thing to do is to provide for his mother at this point. And he does it and then it's finished. Once again, we see Jesus who's not overwhelmed by the chaos, but we see a Jesus who is the king in this situation, who is in control in this situation, is doing everything that needs to be done. And so then that takes us to the last of the four stories. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now accomplished, said to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar of uh, full of sour wine was there. So they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it's accomplished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, uh, there are Sometimes that's translated, it is finished, which is, a, which is a valid translation. But the word means a little more than finished. The word has got the idea, not just done, but you've actually reached a goal. You've finished, you've crossed the finishing line, but you've actually done everything you wanted to do. And so I think accomplished is, is a, a, a better translation for this, which is why I've gone with that translation. Um, Because this is the whole point, that Jesus the King has accomplished everything that he set out to do. It's a point. It's victory. And he said to fulfill the scripture once again, that note there, um, uh, I I thirst. So um, three points on this. The first is he chose to do it uh, to fulfill scripture. He's calmly in control. He chooses at this point to fulfill scripture. Um, then to say, um, the next thing is that if you notice the end of it, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. He actually had the power to give up life. None of us can do this. None of us can just say, oh, I'm going to die now and just die. Jesus could do this. He had power to let go of life. And once again, John is, this is my third point, once again, John is drawing us towards Psalm 22, um, although there's also a Psalm 69 reference in here. Um, So, back to our outline. Um, Our outline, Jesus was calmly in control. All happened exactly as he wanted. He was king. And this is the point that we've just been covering. Jesus control. And John portraying that and selecting stories that just show Jesus doing this. 
But also, John is explicitly linking us with Psalm 22. And then we're going to see the new creation element at the end. So, Psalm 22. As soon as you see it, if you don't know it, you will immediately recognize why it relates to this story. And just a note that the Jews in those days would have known the Psalms by heart. This would have been a worship song, and they would have known it. So here we go. Psalm 22. For the music director, according to the tune, Doe of the Dawn, which, alas, we don't have the tune anymore, a psalm of David. So this is written out of David's experience, but we don't know what experience it was he had, or maybe it was general of various experiences of his life. Now, uh, back in May, Anne and I did a sermon where we looked at psalms of complaint. And we looked at a five-part structure, we called it A, B, C, D, E, where A was ah, and B was because, C was confidence, and uh, this is one of those psalms. It actually has got a, repeats the, the, uh, the BC section a couple of times, um, but it falls very much into those five sections. And uh, so it's interesting to see how this fits in. So let's have a look then at this psalm. Let's get in a bit closer. So it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, words that Jesus used on the cross, not reported by John, but I think John is assuming that we know that already. We'd have read the other Gospels. I groan in prayer, but helps seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. You are holy. You sit as king, receiving the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you, and you rescued them. To you, they cried out, and they were saved. In you, they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. People insult me and despise me. All who see me taunt me. They mock me and shake their heads. And of course, that was happening when Jesus was on the cross. Incidentally, it was a very short distance outside the city where Jesus was crucified. And this was Passover. This was during the Passover week when Jerusalem would have been packed. The largest group in the whole year would have been there. And so a lot of people would have seen him. And they mocked and they taunted him. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, for he delights in him. And I put that in red because that's almost exactly the word that some of them are using. You know, he he healed people. Let him heal himself. Uh, uh, so um, then this is another statement of confidence. Yes, you are the one who brought me out of out from the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breasts. I have been dependent on you since birth. From the time I came out of my mother's womb, you have been my God. And now with the actual prayer. Do not remain far away from me, for trouble is near and I have no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, powerful bulls of Bashan. Now, if you've ever seen a bull with horns when it's angry, uh, you don't want to be in a field with that animal. Um, it's It's... Extraordinary. Powerful bulls of Bashan hem me in. 
They open their mouths to devour me, like a roaring lion that rips its prey. My strength drains away like water. All my bones are dislocated, which of course would have been experienced on the cross. My heart is like wax. It melts away inside me. And now an expression of, of dryness, of thirst, thirst. The roof of my mouth is, mouth is as dry as pottery. My tongue sticks to my gums. You set me in the dust of death. Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men around me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Again, a reference not quoted by John, but in the other Gospels. I can count all my bones which, of course, would be descriptive of the cross. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph, which was descriptive. They divide up my clothes among them, themselves. They roll dice for my garments, exactly what John was quoting. But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. So this is the psalm, and I'm going to read the last bit in a minute. But um, you'll have noticed how many close connections there are with Jesus. But you'll also probably have noticed a huge difference because the psalmist is panicking. The psalmist is desperate. The psalm doesn't even, psalmist doesn't even know whether God's going to hear him or not and is, uh, is in this anxious state, this anxious, panicky, desperate state. That is not prophetic of Jesus' experience. <clears throat> I want to suggest to you that it's not so much that Psalm 22 is prophesying Jesus' experience on the cross, but it's a kind of reverse prophetic link. Jesus comes back to David and calms him. Jesus, having taken on the, 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 the dis- difficult problems of David, comes back and provides him peace. It's a reverse prophetic link. And so um, Jesus is able to say, I've walked through this because I've walked through the same experience as you, but with calm victory. I can now come and bring you calm and we can end up with peace. And so we see this is what happens. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my community. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. Your, you loyal followers of the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel stand in awe of him. For he did not despise or detest the suffering of the oppressed he did not ignore them. When they cried out to him, he responded. Now, I'm not going to read anymore because there's a lot of praise that goes on here and a lot of just praising God for what he's done here. And it's a great psalm. But what I want to bring us to is John's purpose in so closely linking Jesus' death with this psalm. And I want to suggest to you that this is the main purpose. When we go through horrific situations, like Psalm 22, Jesus can say, I have been through what you are going through. I have won the battle. I've destroyed the enemy that you are now fighting. I am with you right now. Rest calmly 
in my victory. And I think that, I, I said earlier that John doesn't explicitly link the atonement to this story, except through the relationship with the Passover lamb. I think this is the connection, because Psalm 22 is the story of somebody who's, they're faced with death. They're faced with utter destruction. And Psalm 22 is about salvation when it comes to it. But it's more than that. It's adding something much more. Jesus didn't just answer David. Jesus said, I'm actually going to go through with you on your behalf. And I'm going to defeat death, defeat the horror on your behalf. And because I can be calm and have peace and have victory as king. So can you. I find this so powerful. I find this so powerful because there are times in my life that I can relate to some bits of Psalm 22 and to see that, okay, Jesus has deliberately walked through something and wants to tell me that he has peace because he's won it. There's nothing the world can throw at me that he's not been through, that he can't have peace and victory. This is so powerful for me. And as I saw this connection through Psalm 22, it spoke to me so deeply. And I thought, Andrew, what are you afraid of? Like, what stuff? Like, there's, you know, there's all the COVID stuff around. There's all, there's all kind of stuff in society that's around right now. There's, there's all kinds of things. Then there's, you know, health problems. There's my family's health problems. There's all kinds of things that can make me frightened. And I think, but you know, that's what it's about. This is what Psalm 22 is about. It's about taking the anxiety of that and bringing Jesus' story into that, where Jesus is ruling. Jesus is peace. And I, this, this was so encouraging to me to just fellowship with Jesus in this and to hear Jesus saying, Andrew, look what I did. You don't have to worry. I've been through that for you. Uh, I want to say that John's purpose, I believe, this is the main reason why John has done these two things. He's linked Jesus' story to David's out of, um, to, to David's out of control anxiety, out of control terror is linked, linked to Jesus. To show us a Jesus who is king, calm, victorious, in control in similar circumstances. And I think the purpose of this is to rest in Jesus. He is your victory. Now, you might say, well, didn't Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross in one of the other Gospels? Yes, he did, but I don't think Jesus was confused at that point. I don't think he he didn't know why, you know, what was happening. I think Jesus was making this connection for us. Again, Jesus was quoting the psalm to tell us what was happening. Um, uh, so I want us to note something very important in the psalm. And that is that the the in the psalm, when we come to this praise at the end, a lot of references to um, the suffering of the oppressed, to the poor and needy, uh, let the oppressed seek um, those who might be despised, and uh, let's see what else there is. Uh, um, 
the, here's another reference. Let the oppressed eat and be filled. And it's, uh, it's people who are crying to God. Um, they are some other, those who are descending to the grave. You know, that's how they feel. They, they, they are so desperate. In fact, those who are dying, they can't preserve their lives. Uh, it's these people. And I think what it's saying in this psalm, as it builds up to a praise here, is very, very important. What it's saying is the kind of faith that this psalm shows is not some great bold faith, I'm going to be the woman or man of faith that walks through. It's like a needy cry, a desperate cry. Please help me, help me. Where are you? Where are you? What's happening? That's the cry that is sufficient. We don't need some massively powerful faith to save us. All we need is to cling to Jesus. And the faith that saves, I want to say, this this passage is drawing us, is painting for us a faith that saves. The faith that saves is a needy and clinging trust. um, And that's what Jesus uses to connect with us and walk with us. A needy, clinging trust. That is all you need for salvation. And if you don't, if you're not following Jesus, if you, you're not a Christian and, and you're listening or watching this, I want to encourage you. You don't have to achieve some massive heights of faith. All you have to do is to cry to him and saying, I'm, I'm coming to you because I don't have any other options. I don't have any other options. He gives us his victory as he walks with us and calms our fears. We join him in his victory over darkness on the cross. That is the faith that saves, that just clings to him. He calms our fears and joins us and walks through with us where we are right now. So that's my connection with Psalm 22, or I should say John's connection with Psalm 22. So we've looked at Jesus calmly in control. He's the king. And now we've just looked at the second point, which is the link with Psalm 22. And I want to add one more thing, which is the new creation. And um, I mentioned earlier that there was something I didn't want to tell you then because I didn't want to spoil the surprise. Well, here we go. So <clears throat> Jesus came into the world, born of Mary, growing, starting his ministry, and finally reaching his goal. John, with these four stories, is going in the opposite direction, unmistakably. And I want to call this undoing the old creation existence. I just think this is so cool. Uh, He's achieved his purpose as a king. We've got a countdown here. That's why we start at three. He's achieved his purpose as king. He doesn't need clothes anymore. He's, he's, that, that's gone. Then even his birth from a mother. It's like he's saying, um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm even going to, uh, pass, sort of uh, almost like undo that. And then finally, the old body itself, he gives up as he dies. And one of the reasons I think this sequence is true is because otherwise the Mary story makes no sense because Jesus' brother James was capable of doing this job. Naturally, he would take over. And, and, and 
soon became one of the leaders in the, the new church. Um, but this was a spiritual act of care um, that he was doing. And it was really saying, you won't be known as my mother anymore. Like, I'm actually, my, my humanity, my, my, my physical nature, my body is, is going, and my new body doesn't come from you. My new body, you know, you're not going to be the mother of my new body. So I just want to make sure you're taken care of at this point. And it's more a spiritual taking care of her so that she knew that she was, she, he was with her and she was, she was important to her, even though he wasn't actually her son anymore. Um, the, the next chapter, of course, is uh, a new body and not born of Mary, but born of the Spirit, as Paul tells us. And then in Revelation 20, when we read, he who sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. So sometime in the near future, I would like to look at the historical evidence for all the things that are going on here, Jesus' death, his resurrection, um, uh, Jesus' crucifixion, by the way, outside of Jerusalem, uh, was, as, as Keener says, almost undisputable historic fact. There's very few serious historians, if any, that would actually dispute that this event happened. But that's for another time. But what I want to focus on now is our response that John is inviting us into in the story. And I'm just going to sum it all up on my last slide. Um, my last slide. Do not be afraid of death or catastrophe or any kind of evil. Have a clinging trust in Jesus and he will join to you and walk with you. Paul expands on this and talks about how we united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In some senses, we were there. And in some senses, he, well, in a very real sense, he is with us as we go through our crises. There is nothing that you can suffer that he has not defeated. I don't know what you're going through right now. Probably different people here are going through different things. But I just want you to take it in that Jesus knows and he is there walking through with you and bringing his calm into the situation. He gives us victory. As he walks with us and calms our fears, we join him in his victory on the cross over darkness. And I'm contrasting the, the chaotic anxiety at the beginning of Psalm 22 with Jesus' peace and control and victory feeding into the end of Psalm 22 when that peace comes back in to David as he writes the psalm. And that that, that should be our experience. And then I want to say, spoiler for the next chapter, things get better. And we're going to see that you can start enjoying the new creation right now. There's a countdown we've seen, three, two, one, zero, and then the explosion of new life through the Spirit. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the next chapter. But until then, let's enjoy what we've been given today. So I'm going to pray now. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ, this immeasurable gift that 
that answers all of our problems, all of our needs. We thank you that you've given him to us. And we ask that every single one here, every single person, will cling to you and know your peace and your victory as the king in all of their problems, able and powerful to bring them through to the end in victory. Amen.